0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the CMYK Talks Podcast. My name is Seth. It is good to be back with you. Uh, I did talk a couple weeks ago. I interviewed Ethan and Kaylee Canning. We talked about their um, ideas and thoughts around generosity. Uh, be good to listen, if you want to listen to that one, uh, up to you. Uh, but now you get to hear from the mouth and the mind of me. Um, it's, been a, it's been a unique uh, couple months in my life because Matt asked me to... Um, Talk over these couple weeks and and formulate some ideas. And if I'm being completely honest with you, I, I had no idea what I wanted to talk about uh, today. Uh, just been having a lot of stuff rattling through my brain. i I feel like I'm at a really unique place with what it means to um, be a person of belief. I guess uh, <laughs> spirituality, Christianity, all of those things. I, I just feel like I'm at this unique spot. And so when I was talking to Matt, I was like, Matt, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And he said you know, maybe, just maybe, you should um, not talk about deconstruction. And uh, because I've done that the last couple times, I've talked about this idea of deconstruction. And if you've been around the CMYK community a little bit, you know, then that we've had this conversation around construction, deconstruction and reconstruction, construction being, you know, you're given a certain set of ideas to believe and to live out and those ideas shape who you are and your actions and your beliefs and 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 those things formulate a lot of who you are but then something unique happens for some people not everyone but this thing called deconstruction can happen and what happens is all those beliefs you thought you once had kind of start falling apart and you start poking the box you start asking a lot of questions and, and a lot of emotions come with that and and kind of the, the whole fortress if you will comes toppling down the fortress of belief and ideas you once had it kind of yeah it, it just kind of topples down and then there's this interesting place of reconstruction where you move out of deconstruction and you start rebuilding and you start redefining what you believe and where you're at and so this doesn't just happen in religion and, and belief by the way it happens in all things uh, it can happen in all things sorry that that there's construction deconstruction reconstruction and so I talked a couple months back about my deconstruction and if you want to go listen to that the, the talk is up somewhere on the see on the either on the website or the, the pod the the yeah the CMIC Talks podcast. Um, I think it's called like a Story of Deconstruction is the title of it. But that's just kind of my journey through deconstruction and um, and I, I guess I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about deconstruction today. But I think what's important to to define is that today yeah. I'm also going to be talking about <clears throat> excuse me um, some reconstruction and a place that I've had to arrive at um, of late and. It's been really beneficial for my brain to start re-arriving, re-arriving? To arrive at some places, <laughs> and um, I'm going to talk about that today. So to get where um, I talk about where I've arrived, I need to back up five years, which that seems like a long time, but it's really crucial that we back up five years. So five years ago, I am 24 years old. Um, I'm a youth pastor at a church in Billings, Montana. Um, it's going really well. We got, a, we got a ragtag group of people who are uh, doing our best to... Um, take care of and love students, and it's a lot of fun, and it's some of the best years of my life, if I'm being honest. Um, <clears throat> I think fondly of it. Just this uh, past week in my life, I had the chance to go reinteract with some of these people, and, and it was just, it's really fond memories and beautiful times. So anyway, I'm 24 years old, and I'm working as a youth pastor, and, and one day, um, my, my wife looks at me, and she says, Seth, you're a good man. And uh, immediately, uh, this hit me wrong. This was, uh, it, 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 didn't, it didn't settle right. So I, I kind of I looked at her and I said, thanks, you know, like a question, like, thank, thank you. D- do you know who I am? Like, <clears throat> are you sure I'm a good man? Because everything I know about myself indicates I'm not a good man. It's kind of like, have you ever had someone give you a compliment, but you didn't think the compliment was true? And you were like, yeah, that's really nice of you, but I don't believe that. And I don't think that's actually true. This is how it was when Michaela looked at me and said, you're a good man. And so what's kind of crazy is, so she calls me a good man, but then also other people start kind of saying it too. And I don't think they were in any way like tied to Michaela in the way she was saying it, but just other people around me were kind of just starting to look at me and make this distinction of like, Seth, you're a really good man. <clears throat> People kept telling me that and reminding me that. And so, so there's this problem that I'm facing of like, I just don't, like, you know how we all, we all know ourselves to, to the core, or at least we try as human beings to understand ourselves really well. And, and there's, th- there's certain things that maybe someone thinks about you that you just don't find true because you know yourself to the deepest part of your soul. Like, that's how I feel, felt about this five years ago, that someone would say, Seth, you're a good man. And I would just say, you just don't know me. I generally take the compliment and just be like, thank you. Um, but I ended up starting to lose sleep over this idea of what it meant to be good. And and this is really weird because goodness is, is a really tough thing. And I want to make a very important distinction right now. That I'm not talking about goodness in the sense of, like, God. Um, and I'm going to get to unpacking that in a minute. I'm talking about just the essence of goodness. Like, what does it mean to be good? <clears throat> Sorry. And so, and so I start losing sleep over this question of being good because people are telling me I'm good, but I don't believe that I'm good. I don't think I'm a good man, but people are telling me I'm a good man. And there's this really interesting disconnect that's happening in my heart and my mind. And so I literally start losing sleep over this idea of what it means to be good. Tied so deeply to that is this belief system in this um, religion of Christianity that I'm a part of and I'm a pastor in that tells me, things like you can't be good aside from God like you can't be good without God from God flows all good things and therefore God is the inventor and creator and and the the, the source of all goodness and so there's a problem there because I <clears throat> I am uh, a pastor Uh, in the evangelical Christian world and there's a God who is supposedly good and if I'm tied and connected to him and invest in a relationship with him and believe in him then I also will be good. And I wasn't Good. I didn't think I was good. I, I didn't know what it meant to be good. And so this all kind of started to feel like a lie or it started pushing me to this place of like, well, what is goodness then? How do we define what it means to be good? Where do I find it? What is it? Um, how do other people see it? And, and this this question starts to eat me up so much so, so that I start to go to therapy about it. And it that sounds kind of funny, I know, but thankfully I officed right next door to one of our biblical counselors who also doubles as a therapist, really great dude. And so I start popping myself into his office, um, like in between his meetings and stuff. And we start having this conversation of goodness. And it's pretty, it's, it's the pretty standard narrative that, that even I just laid out that like, uh, God is good. And if you're in God, therefore God makes you good. And if you're not in God also, you know, still goodness flows from him. So all good in the world flows from God. And that became very tough for me because I watched people who weren't in this belief system and in this faith, who I considered to be good people, but they weren't attached to God. So there was this really weird then concept of like, well, they don't have to believe the same God I believe in, but they can still be good. But then what's the point of me doing my job? (laughs) Like, like, why am I getting paid to be a pastor to teach people about this God and his ways if people can be good aside from him? Like, if, he, if, if if this God can be the source of all goodness and people don't necessarily need to believe in him to be good, then what am I doing? And you might at this point think I'm rambling and I'm sorry, but this was all the stuff that went through my head about goodness. And eventually, my therapist tells me, Seth, only good men ask this kind of question. That if you're this obsessed with wanting to be good, then you need to know that you're a good man because you are seeking out goodness and what it means. And so he said, what you need to do for me is you need to go back into your office. And in my office, I had this little tiny whiteboard on my desk. I had a giant whiteboard on the wall where I did most of my work. I had a little tiny whiteboard where I just write little things down, little notes, um, you know, like literally any little thought that that wasn't crucial to the week's work, I'd kind of write it down on the side. And on this little whiteboard, I wrote the phrase, I am a good man. And this is what I was told to write down. I was told to write down, I am a good man. And so I would look at it most likely five, six days of the week. And I would, I would say it to myself that I am a good man. And so I start doing this. And this really weird thing called cognitive dissonance kicks in where I am trying to instill this belief in myself of, I am a good man and I'm trying to believe it, but I don't think my actions actually follow through with being a good man. That I'm saying I'm a good man, but I don't actually think I'm, I don't think my actions align with that. So what cognitive dissonance is, is when there's a a belief that doesn't align with an action in your life. If you hold a certain belief and value, but yet it's not lived out and acted upon, that means those two things are in conflict. They don't agree. And so cognitive cognitive dissonance is, is the conflict then between those. And so what needs to happen is either the belief needs to change or the action needs to change. And I just way oversimplified a very complicated thing. So if you want to learn more, go look it up. But I had this cognitive dissonance of I'm a good man, but I I don't... I was telling myself I was a good man, but I didn't see myself as a good man. There was a cognitive dissonance there. And so what had to change for me? Well, very simply, the thing that had to change was my belief about being a good man. I eventually resigned myself to the fact that I am not a good man. And then my actions and my belief aligned, that I was not a good man, and it's really tough for me because people kept telling me I was good, people kept insisting that I was good, and I I eventually stopped fighting back, and I stopped arguing, I just started saying thank you and nodding my head, and these moments would really eat me up, and so I had to really think about it and consider it, and I, I have no idea where this obsession with goodness comes from, but I'm obsessed, I want so badly to be seen as a good man, it's all I want. That's all I've ever wanted in my life. And, and, and at the end of my life, I, this is gonna, this, this might sound crazy, but hear me out. I don't, at the end of my life, when I'm, when I die, I don't want people to look at my life and say things like he was a good husband or a good friend, or he was um, a really good uh, uh, teacher or thinker or, or I don't, I don't care about that stuff. I don't care. All I want people to say about me is that I was good. That's it. Period. I want people to look back at my life and say, that was a good man. Because there's something about that that encompasses a life that was worthwhile. That if I was good, if I can only be good, then everything else is going to be good too. And that, that might be a faulty thought. And I'm, I'm willing to admit that. But that's where this obsession comes from. That at the end of my life, I just want people to say I was good. And I keep losing sleep over it. I keep believing I'm not a good man. People keep telling me I am a good man. And it's just, it's so weird for me. What, what makes it even worse is I think there's this really key component to Western culture that's built on Greek philosophy, so the Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, uh, one of the big things they pushed for is this individualism, individualism in, in morality and ethic and goodness, that, that the individual could achieve such a state of, of morality and ethic and goodness that they could just overcome any obstacle in life. That, that through, through your own personal reflection and, and hard work, you could attain this status of being good. And, and I think this idea kind of bleeds itself into Western culture in a lot of ways that, you know, t- t- to lend this, this to the, the narrative of the church that I think in, in the church a lot of times there's this narrative of like, hey, if you're good with God individually, you're going to be good then. Like if, like you can be good individually and that bleeds itself into Christianity at times. And it says, you can be, you and God can be good individually. And as long as you believe in God, as long as you follow God in this way, you will be good, but it's on you to do it. And, and what, what's really tough about that is no matter how hard I tried to be good, it just never happened. It never, it never was the reality. It never worked. And I found myself in this impossible situation of wanting nothing more than to be a good man, but, but believing I was not a good man and people telling me I was a good man. And it just felt like I was between this rock and this hard place in, in my own personal life and my pursuit of goodness and in my, my work as a pastor and in my relationships. I just felt like I was a fraud because everyone thought I was good and I was convinced I couldn't be. And I was convinced that I, I was never going to be able to be good either. And what happens from there, on top of all the other experiences I had in deconstruction, that I as I've reflected on this the last couple months, I realized this was a huge piece of my deconstruction because so much of my construction around God was like I just said, that God can make me good. That my belief within God, um, and, and specifically the Judeo-Christian God, right? Like the, this God of Christianity, that this God can make me good, but I was not good good. And, and, and the fortress, the building, the, the thing I built that, that held God inside, the construction started just to fall down piece by piece. That I found myself in this immense state of deconstruction that that over time, over the next five years, I, I had a rubble pile at my feet of what used to be a belief system and ideas I trusted and believed in and held true. And all that was left was just this pile of rocks and rubble below me that I had deconstructed the whole thing and I didn't know where to go next. And so deconstruction is a lot of fun. We've talked about this before because with deconstruction, you're allowed to experience a lot of emotions and feel very justified in them. Emotions like frustration and bitterness and cynicism. Like like when you, when you deconstruct your faith and you look back at what you used to believe about your faith and you feel justified in being angry towards it, that you'd look at it and go, oh man, those Christians, they're terrible. They don't get it. Or you'd say things like, man, the church is a waste of money and time and energy, and I'm so glad I'm not a part of it anymore. Like these are, these are some common thoughts across the people I've talked to in deconstruction. And obviously they're not exactly fleshed out like that, but these are some of the thoughts that I was experiencing that, that deconstruction was fun because I got to tear the whole thing down and criticize it. And, and it was awesome. It was freeing. It was profound and powerful that I got to do that. But what's interesting is, is if we stay in deconstruction too long, there's these feelings of bitterness and anger and cynicism that that don't get us anywhere. That we just stare. we stand there poking at the rubble and, and moving rocks around to use the analogy. And we just we keep st- that turning over our cynicism and our anger and our bitterness of what used to be. And we can stay there for a really long time. Sometimes, like I, I was there for years. Years I was there, just wanting to be angry and justified. And, 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 and then there's this transition that, that eventually has to happen, this deconstruction to reconstruction transition where you look at the rubble and you have to intentionally start picking through it to find the things that could last, to find the, the cornerstones and the pieces, the bedrock maybe that mattered, that you could rebuild something new. And so recently I've had to do this. And I've had, to, I've had to look at the rubble, and instead of being angry and bitter and cynical because I did it for so long, I had to start putting, putting my hands down to the rubble and feeling around and, and, and moving dirt and looking for something of value. And what I ended up finding, surprisingly, is I don't think I was ready to find anything, but what I found was this, this large piece of the bedrock of my construction was still there. And what it was, this this large piece, this large stone, this large uh, rock was that, that the relationships that I'd formed throughout my life mattered so much to me that no matter what, no matter what the people around me, th- I mean, no matter what they thought or what they believed or who they were, like every, every bit of who I am today has been formulated by the relationships around me. Current friends, previous friends, previous employers, um, uh, t- teachers, uh, random strangers who I had conversations with that, that there's this big piece of my life that is so formulated around other people that, that the whole construction I went through in the very beginning was based upon other people. And it was based upon really beautiful relationships. And it was this, this thing I just, I looked at with fondness because for the first time in my deconstruction, I wasn't bitter or cynical or angry. I got to smile and laugh and be happy because I found something deep within there that mattered. And so so I pulled, I pulled the cornerstone out, so to speak, of the rubble, and, and I set it aside. And I set it aside for later use uh, until I found something that I could start building back upon it. In 1499, a gentleman by the name of Bernardino de Sahagún was born. A Spaniard who uh, became a Franciscan monk and moved himself to New Spain, where the Aztecs were, in 14—or 1529, sorry. Born in 1499, moved in 1529 to New Spain to go study the culture of the Aztecs. And so what Bernardino does is Bernardino starts um, uh, interacting— with uh, the Aztecs and learning about culture and society and religion and, and philosophy and ethic and government, all for the sake of someday better witnessing to them to try and convert them to Christianity. Um, but in his study, it, it, it takes 50 years. It's kind of crazy that, that he spends 50 years with the Aztecs compiling a ton of work, and it eventually comes out to be this thing called the Florentine Codex. And this Florentine Codex was a 50-year work by Bernardino that laid out everything about the Aztecs. And as we look at it now, it's actually quite profound because what what people might sometimes think about the Aztecs is that they were simply barbarians and savages. Because we hear about things like child sacrifice and we hear about these ideas that seem very primitive, especially for... Let's say what what we think is the you know the 1500s. Like oh, that's just inappropriate. So these are savages and barbarians. But what Bernardino goes on to discover is their their culture is so richly philosophical, and 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 the the way they conduct themselves socially is very very complex. Because at at the at the core of what the Aztecs believed is that they believed that the whole meaning of life was not necessarily to be good. But it was to live a life that was worthwhile, or the word they would have used, and this is the translation, is rooted. A life that is rooted and worthwhile was the entire purpose of life, that everything you did was worthwhile and rooted. And this fleshed itself out in a couple different ways in society, but what's most fascinating to me is that their idea of ethic and goodness was fostered socially and communally. You see, what the Aztecs believed is they believed that the earth is a slippery and slick place. That no matter who you are, no matter how good you are, no matter what you've experienced, no matter how old, how young, no matter what, everybody has the potential to slip and fall because the earth is a slick and slippery place. And so what happens when you fall is you reach your hand out and someone helps pick you up. And so In their culture, they had this idea that ethic and morality and goodness were fostered socially and communally. That it was not this individualistic pursuit that to be rooted and to be have a worth a life that was worthwhile meant to have a life that was socially communal and and, and goodness and virtue was all created from a social standpoint. Now, this idea is very different from the Greek philosophers in Western culture. This idea of individualism, that, that you do this on your own. You foster your own character and goodness and morality and ethic, and therefore you conquer the day. The Aztecs said, nope, we're all going to fail and slip and fall at some point, and we need each other to pick each other up. And in the Florentine Codex then, uh, Bernardino goes on to ex- describe so many different circumstances in which this was happened. It's, it's really interesting, and I, I can't get into a lot of them now, but they just had different social customs for teaching virtue then. Like, for example, this was just one of the examples that I read about was if you were a merchant, and let's say you were the best merchant, that in all of your travels, you made the best trades, the best deals, you learned the most about other cultures, that you were well-received, you were well-versed. Like, let's say you were the best merchant around. So before you left out on another journey to go explore the world and make trades and and bring things back to your culture from other cultures and exchange your culture with other cultures, uh, before you left, you'd do a burnt offering to the gods uh, to make sure the gods were uh, pleased with you and they would bless your trip. And then the day you left, instead of, instead of um, just leaving because you were the best, what you would do is you would gather around people from the community who had insight and and questions to ask. And so these were people that, that valued uh, wisdom and, and maybe people that you looked at who also had good social ethic, but you'd gather these people around and before you left, you'd go through this like question and answer ritual with them, that you'd look at the people around you and ask questions about what you should do on your journey and hear what their responses were and take them to heart. Now, in Western culture, this is weird because if you're the best at something, you're generally the one teaching other people. Now, I realize there's an argument to be made that the best also learn from other people. But we all think that the best are the ones who do the teaching, and in this Aztec way of life, the best humble themselves to the people around them and defer to the wisdom and ideas and questions and answers of the people around them. Now, that's just one very simple example, but what the Aztecs would do is foster wisdom, ethic, morality, and goodness socially. And so this is all captured in the Florentine Codex, and it's a really, really good read, and I'm honestly really grateful that I stumbled upon the work of Bernardino, because what this does for me is it makes this unique connection, because like I just said, as I dug through the rubble of my deconstruction and what I pulled out was this idea that relationships are this lasting thing that matter to me, this idea started to spin in the back of my head about the Florentine Codex, that, that this idea of social fostering and social and communal ethic and goodness and morality was a whole new idea for me. That all these relationships I have, all these relationships I have had, all the ones I do have, and all the ones I will have, have something really important to teach me. And because of the deconstruction and the rubble around me, there are so many things tied to my uh, my my faith system of what I once believed in Christianity—that there's this story that I haven't been able to shake for quite some time. That there's a lot of stories I I go back to in the in the Christian scriptures, and and it's really easy for me to just roll my eyes at this point. And rather than and that I think that's part of deconstruction, right? Like just rolling your eyes at them and and finding them to be not important or worthless or a waste of your time, and and I'll just own that. Like that's just a some a place that I'm at but there's this one story I can't seem to shake and when I think about what happened in the rubble that there was relationships that were pulled out and there's this really important piece that I need to rebuild upon and then I I find this idea of social goodness from the Aztec culture through the Florentine codex that that when you slip and fall you put your hand out and someone grabs it and picks you back up there's this really unique story from the judeo-christian perspective that I can't get over because this is the story at the beginning of, the, this is the beginning of the entire book for the Judeo-Christian story. This is the bedrock of belief. This is, this is where it all starts. And for me, I, I guess if I'm just being honest with you, I don't think I can look at this story with a sense of literalism anymore. And some of you might say, well, then what's the point? And that's okay. But um, my friend Alan uh, he's he's a good friend of mine. He he always tells me that th- stories have power. Like, like the reason a story exists is because a story has power. And so this story has something really unique tucked away in it. So I'm going to read you the story. And so I encourage you to sit back and listen and I will serenade you. But this is a story about the beginning of the Judeo-Christian faith tradition. And there's something that I think needs to be highlighted in this story. Here we go. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. And then the Lord God formed the man from dust of the ground, and he breathed life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees growing up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. A second branch, called the Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east to the land of Ashur, and the fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And so the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And he let let the man choose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. And she will be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So there's this really important story at the beginning of the Judeo-Christian belief system. This story that's full of life and creativity. That there's a God who cultivates the earth and puts a man in it to work it. And there's God and man. And it seems like they got a pretty good thing going on, right? That in the, in, in the Western... Uh, belief that, that it's man and God existing, and they're good. That if it's just man and God, they're good. But there's something tucked deep within this story of creativity and uniqueness and creation that at the, at the beginning of this story for the Judeo-Christian faith tradition, there is one phrase that God says that is so fascinating to me. That God looks at the situation. He says, it is not good for man to be alone man wasn't alone. Man had God. But for some reason, God looks at the situation and says, this is not okay, and we need to fix this. And so the creative process continues, that there's animals, birds of the sky, wild animals, livestock, but it's still not good enough. And then God, uh, in, in, in the creativity of the God of the story, he makes a woman. And, and he brings the woman to the man and the man goes, that's it. I am no longer alone. And God does it, looks at it and says, you are no longer alone. Like that's so fascinating to me that, that at the core of the story, at the beginning of the story of this faith tradition is one that says it's not okay to be alone. So what happens is I, I wrestle with this idea of what it means to be good. And the walls come toppling down. And I dig through the rubble, and at the bottom of the rubble, I find a cornerstone, a rock, a huge piece of something important that is all the relationships I have had, the relationships I do have, and the relationships I will have because of all the things they've taught me. And I read things like the Florentine Codex, and there's this philosophical way of life that the Aztecs live, that if you slip and fall, no matter how good you are, no matter where you're at, no matter the circumstance, you're going to slip and fall, and if you reach your hand out, someone is there to clasp your hand and pick you up. And then I see this story at the foundation of the geo-Christian faith that says it's not good for man to be alone. And the only place I know how to arrive at this point, that where the reconstruction starts for me is that I look at the people around me and I look at myself and I say, I can't be good without you. That this, this is the place that I've arrived That when I examine this idea of goodness, right? And again, I need to make the distinction. I'm not talking about the essence of God. I'm talking about just goodness. Like, what does it mean to be good? I've I've come to the place and the conclusion for myself and my own life that as I look at myself and the people around me, I say, I cannot be good without you. I can't be good without you. And that's all of you. It's my closest friends. It's the people who are acquaintances. It's the people I work with. It's the people I pass by on the street and have interaction with that everyone in this thing called life has something to teach me about what it means to be good. And since I've arrived there, I haven't lost a whole lot of sleep over what it means to be good anymore. Because I find myself with this new piece that, that there's a lot of things I think in this life point towards the fact that I can't be good without you. And you here's the deal. Feel free to disagree with this. I've had many conversations with some friends how they disagree with this, and that's okay. This is just where I've arrived. that, that for me, a story of reconstruction starts with this unique piece of relationships found at the bottom of the rubble and paired with some other really unique ideas that were in front of me the whole time and some I had to go searching for. I've arrived at the reconstructive piece of I can't be good without you. And what that means for me is that as I walk this slippery and slick earth, I'm going to slip and fall and I'm going to reach my hand out and I need you to pick me up. I'm hoping that you're there to pick me up. That as I navigate this life, I realize that it's not good for me to be alone. That as I navigate this life, I can't be good without you. And I don't know where this puts you in your thoughts today because for me it's been a long and, and trying journey. But, but this is where I've arrived. This is where my reconstruction begins. Is I can't be good without you. And yeah, <laughs> I can't be good without you. And so with that, I want to say have a good day sure, I'm thinking about you. I'm grateful for all of you. And, and when the time comes that I inevitably slip and fall down, I'll be reaching my hand out to you to clasp yours and, and to be getting back up alongside you, to keep going, to learn, to move forward, because I can't be good without you.